Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is April 21st, 2023. While we're waiting for the Supreme Court to release its decision on the Mifepristone case, we're going to discuss some other FDA and CMS-related issues that should be on your radar. First up is some interesting revelations that came to light about Sarepta's gene therapy candidate in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The application is due for an advisory committee meeting on May 12th, but apparently FDA review staff did not want to get did not want it to get that far, at least at first. Former CBER Office of Therapeutic Products Director Wilson Bryan confirmed to us that the review staff did not want to file the application, but were told but were told to by CBER Director Peter Marks. Brian believed that Mark seemed more concerned about the public opinion surrounding the application and did not want the application filed based on its merits. The move was troubling for Brian, who said it was circumventing the formal process in the interest of the company, in addition to raising doubts about the value of free expression of scientific opinion within the FDA. Unfortunately, this is not the first time a Sarepta application created internal disagreements within the FDA. Reviewers did not want to approve the company's DMD treatment in Teplerson, but then Cedar Director Janet Woodcock famously overruled them and granted an accelerated approval in 2016. Brian suggested Sarepta was using the same playbook with the gene therapy product. So I'm curious what you all think of this. Brian argued the application was filed for PR purposes, but it seems like now that it's leaked, the PR game was probably been lost. Well, this, do you think do you all think this will increase the temperature around this application going forward? I it, it seems pretty likely to do it for me. The other thing I think is it's I mean we'll see what happens at the advisory committee and what kind of case different members of the agency make. But I think it might also depending what happens there and with a final approval, you know, it might also raise skepticism around that decision too in terms of. If it gets approved or doesn't get approved, I think people are going to kind of question the backroom dynamics now, too, regardless of whether anything, you know, improper goes on or not. You know, once you have the beginnings of this, I think people start to, you know, might, you know, just lose a little bit of trust in the process. I, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Sarah. And if you look at uh, um, even just this uh, uh, particular product, uh, um, if we can draw a parallel to what uh, uh, happened with Adjuhelm, that uh, you know it was uh, approved under uh, um, you know some some questionable circumstances. Uh, you know, obviously the uh, agency seemed uh, uh, more in lockstep uh, uh, there than they do with this application. Uh, although there's certainly uh, statistical uh, um, concerns from uh, um, from those reviewers. And then uh, once it got on the market, it uh, um, it couldn't get reimbursement. The sort of uh, you know CMS. Uh, um, I care with their policy, and uh, um, it just uh, really hasn't uh, gotten any traction. And so, if the end goal of the process that uh, uh, Peter Marks was trying to uh, affect by, uh, you know, allowing the application to uh, to roll through in terms of sort of kind of uh, you know being a positive for patients and the um, you know and the in the community, um, even if it got approved under these circumstances, I I don't know if it would be a positive because it would uh, you know perhaps create a, a similar kind of uh, Reimbursement blowback uh, that uh, um, could actually set, uh, um, you know, set treatment back uh, um, for uh, other more promising uh, um, products that might come along the pike. Yeah, and it's ironic because the Teplerson had the same problem. 
when they when it first came out, there were questions about efficacy and and everything else. And some of the insurance companies initially didn't want to reimburse for it, and the the rare disease community had to really lobby them hard. And I think they were even going, you know, in some cases to individual states to to really push them to you know to reimburse for that as well. So you know it. Again, it's a you know you talk talk about following the same playbook. I, I, this could really follow the almost exact same playbook as what we've seen before. And I also wonder what you all think about you know th- this and and the state of the of the agency internally. I know you know one analyst characterized this disagreement as normal scientific debate, which you know occurs and is healthy, and we all want to encourage that. Um, do you think that's the case or, you know, I mean, again, you know, based on kind of what we've heard so far, do you think there's something deeper going on here or, you know, do you think the agency is going to learn something from this? You know, I was wondering whether Wilson or Brian has a history of being sort of a dissenting voice within the agency, you know, what his motivations might have been to come out with something like this. Well, he didn't. Um, he also told me that he he didn't agree that the the application should be filed, and um, yeah, I mean, he had just retired. He was he said he was worried about the review staff, in, you know, in part because you know this whole idea that scientific opinion is not being taken seriously by some people and just flat out overruled because they didn't follow the formal process for you know, appealing uh, a refuse to file application or, uh, you know, refusing to file an application. So, you know, you, uh, I'm not sure what his motivation is, you know, specifically, but I know, you know, I kind of, you know, we we know a little bit about where he stands on the whole, in the whole issue. Derek, he told you that uh, this particular disagreement was not um, the trigger for his resignation. He'd been thinking about it for a while and, uh, you know, he didn't sort of kind of uh, leaving a, a huff over uh, this, but uh, um, if I can uh, circle back to the phrasing of your uh, um, uh, question from before, you know, I don't know if I would call it normal and, and and healthy, and I don't know if we need to sort of kind of connect normal and healthy. Things can be normal and and be unhealthy. That uh, the idea that a uh, um, center director uh, um, is sort of kind of dictating how an application should uh, proceed. Uh, um, you know, doesn't uh, sound uh, sort of uh, uh, particularly healthy, especially if it sort of uh, happens uh, um, frequently. Obviously, uh, you know, they uh, there's a chain of command and uh, the folks in charge get to make the uh, ultimate decisions. But uh, if it's uh, simply uh, uh, asking the, uh, the reviewers to do things for uh, appearances sake and not for uh, science's sake, I don't think that's particularly healthy, even if it uh, does happen, uh, you know, uh, uh, on a non-unique basis. I mean, it seems to me in terms of whether this is normal, you know, scientific dispute and, you know, disagreement, um, we we need to get a bit more detail. You know, was it kind of everybody working on this application against Peter Marks, right? And, um, you know, what exactly if there is scientific disagreement, what is that about to sort of try and get a sense of, you know, how legitimate maybe the differences of opinion are, as I think that will help us, you know, have a better sense of where this should stand. Because I, I, I know like Jenna Woodcock um, 
has talked about a bit, right? There is a certain amount of judgment call involved in what FDA does in terms of, you know, the science and the data only gets you so far when you're thinking about these risk benefit trade-offs. So there is some expectation that not everybody reviewing a drug, um, particularly when they're going to be close calls, you know, when it's not really, really obvious that the benefit risk profile is favorable, not everybody would come down on the same side. But I think trying to get a better sense of, you know, what if there is data disagreement around the data, what that data actually looks like and, you know, who disagrees and it will help us get a better sense of, you know, how typical this is or reasonable. Um, and I think maybe to to Brian's point, maybe that's why you sort of want to go through those typical agency channels um, to, to work it out, because perhaps that would, you know, they have formal processes to go through those disagreements for a reason. Keep in mind, too, that we're, we're not even talking about the review and an approval decision. We're talking about just filing the application. So put all that aside, and that's going to be interesting to see if we get the review documents, if there's correspondence in there where memos and so forth talking about problems and so forth that they that they had. But we're talking about just the basic allowing them to review the application as in like everything is present so we can look at it. And then they weren't they weren't there. They, you know, there were reviewers apparently who were not comfortable with that. So, you know. Uh, again, it, you know, like you said, sir, we're, we're going to have to wait and see, you know, what, what, like what the problem was. Was there something missing? Were there, did they tell them to put things in here that weren't, you know, that they refused to put in or, were the, you know, were there other things in, you know, were things incomplete or something like that, you know? So that'll be interesting to see. But the other, the other thing that came up and, and this came up uh, in my conversation with Wilson Bryan and also in, um, you know, some of the prior reports about this was, is there a bias in in inside the FDA against Sarepta, given the history the company has with Teplerson and some of the other applications that it's already, you know, the things that it's, drugs that it's already had approved? And you know, there were there were questions about whether the reviewers were a little too hard on Sarepta because of because they know the history of the company. And Wilson Bryan, I think, pretty much wrote that off. I mean, he said they were all you know, they were aware of what was going on, but he didn't see that necessarily clouding the uh, the debate, so to speak. But, um, you know, that's an interesting, you know, issue to bring up or, you know, to, to kind of keep in the back of your mind, too, as we as we go forward on this. Yeah, I thought that was interesting um, to think about, right, whether, you know, they've whether that was one legitimate reason for Marx's decision was he felt like, you know, the history of the, the company had biased these reviewers so much. and um, But I do sort of wonder, is there other ways for the agency to handle that as as well? Like, how, how could they have sort of swapped people out of the review team? You know, is there sort of a more, uh, again, the sort of scientific way in some sense to deal with that? Um, because I can sort of see how, you know, <laughs> people might have developed those sorts of frustrations with the company. Um, if they've reviewed a number of these applications at this point. And again, we're only talking about a filing decision. So, you know, I, I, I know maybe I'm maybe I'm missing something, but there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of ambiguity in. Do you have all the necessary things that we need to see to be able to review the application? You know, so, it yeah, it, it's a it's a very it's an interesting kind of 
issue that's you know kind of developed here and in kind of the the circumstances that it's developed in <laughs> yeah one thing i'm kind of curious about is you know over the years the way fda sort of streamlined its advisory committee processes and how they um put out the briefing documents sometimes you don't get as much color or sense as you used to get um when different parts of the team reviewing the application have disagreements and get you don't see that detail even sometimes there's less people presenting sometimes advisory committees lately so i'll be interested to see like what these documents and the format of these documents come out as if we can really again get that kind of transparency we're hoping for i think now that we have hints of you know disagreement well in the combined review document could be you know could include those things i mean they could work together and say yeah we need to include that so i mean it would be interesting if that's the case too or or if it's you know dependent you know how the tone of the document comes out sure next up we're going to look at the covid-19 vac- vaccine schedule sarah this seemed like a daily discussion a year or two ago but i guess now is it falling on mostly deaf ears yeah so i think when it comes to covid vaccines right now it seems like there's sort of a very engaged part of our population that is interested in kind of keeping up to date and really, you know, concerned about when they need a booster and perhaps that that they may need a booster more often than some people, particularly, you know, older Americans and people with various um, conditions or taking medicines that leave them immunocompromised. But um, so FDA and, you know, CDC did sign off on allowing people um, who are older, who are immunocompromised to get an additional booster now so you know initially this fall they were talking about it sort of as a one shot a year campaign um but there was some recognition that there may be groups that need boosting more frequently and this was sort of to deal with that but in conjunction with that what fda also did was they basically are eliminating the monovalent the original prototype vaccines from use um and using that to kind of what they've termed like sort of simplifying the vaccine schedule to kind of make this announcement to people, okay, basically you don't have to sort of overthink, um, you know, how many shots you've had, whether you've had a shot before or not, pretty much anybody who's who doesn't qualify for that second bivalent booster, if you haven't gotten one yet, you should be eligible now. Um, and so their sort of hope is that this simplification will lead to more people actually getting the bivalent booster. Right now, it's less than 17% of adults in the U.S. have gotten it. And even in the over 65 age group where, you know, uptake is by far the best, it's still, um, you know, just a little bit over 40% of the population got it. So um, we'll see what happens there. You know, I'm a little bit skeptical that this this simplification move is going to make much of a difference without any other more proactive actions on behalf of, you know, various government healthcare agencies, because this was actually fairly similar messaging they tried to do in the fall. Again, say, okay, look, we're coming out of this bivalent vaccine. We're sort of, it's the fall. It's when you get your flu shot. Everybody should basically just think of it as we all need a booster. You get a booster. Um, And there were like, 
it was a little bit more complicated then, right? So if you had never gotten a COVID vaccine before, they were saying you needed to first get your primary series. Um, initially, the bivalent vaccines weren't available to as many children. Um, but it's pretty similar campaign still nonetheless, and that hasn't led to great uptake. Um, so we'll see if, you know, this can make a difference here. And then the other thing that's a little bit unique about this timing is right now we're talking, you know, coming into summer. So I'm not sure if people are, you know, in that mindset of thinking about COVID and getting a vaccine for what, you know, the government has tried to argue, you know, is a bigger risk in the fall and winter now. <laughs> um, I was going to say there's a uh, real uh, bitter irony to me that, uh, you know, the the you think about sort of kind of the annual flu uh, um, uh, vaccination and sort of, kind of is not a uh, super dynamic market, but you know there was a uh, um, a, a fairly big uh, um, base of people that would get that shot uh, every year, and uh, you know it wasn't the uh, highest margin product that. Uh, um, Farmer produced, but it was a uh, a pretty substantial book of business. Anywhere from you know forty to fifty percent of the uh, the population was uh, was getting that, and uh, and now uh, you know after uh, um, this massive uh, vaccine treatable uh, or vaccine addressable pandemic that has uh, rolled through, um, it feels like vaccinations are not being affirmed, but uh, they're they're falling uh, everywhere, and uh, um, the idea that. Uh, um, you know, farm would come up uh, with a uh, um, important product for a uh, a new disease, and uh, um, you know, while they uh, got a massive bolus of uh, um, you know sales from it uh, um, initially, perhaps uh, will not get much uh, um, uh, going forward if the 17% uh, holds. And in fact, it uh, ended up uh, hurting their uh, their core uh, um, uh, flu business along with uh, um, any other. Uh, um, vaccination rates that are, uh, are dipping as well. And obviously it's not all the same companies that are doing these things. So uh, um, it's sort of industry, not particular uh, players per se, that are sort of feeling the, uh, the ill effects of this uh, vaccine skepticism. But uh, I share your skepticism, Sarah, that uh, this will be the uh, the campaign that sort of kind of uh, writes that ship and uh, gets everyone sort of kind of back into the uh, um, pharmacies and their doctor's offices to get those uh, routine jabs. Yeah, the, and the other thing I would be, I would just wanted to point out is um, there was still some criticism from um, CDC's ACIP that um, this simplification is still really not very simple for um, the youngest <laughs> children where vaccine uptake has been the lowest, even, you know, initial um, primary series um, shots have been pretty low in this group. Um, basically, it, it's sort of a dynamic of First of all, they don't have um, data from Pfizer on sort of giving young the youngest kids who are immunocompromised um, additional shots of Pfizer's vaccine, and there hasn't been really any sort of like mix and matching in the youngest kids approved. So if you have a kid who is immunocompromised under six and they got Pfizer shots, there actually isn't an option yet for extra shots, which um, Ace had felt like was leaving, you know, some of the most vulnerable, unfairly vulnerable. And then there's just weird issues because of the way the two companies sort of did their age bracketing a little bit differently. So there's sort of a one flow chart just for five-year-olds, you know, the under four. It just, it's, it's still a lot um, messier and hard to follow in that age group. Well, and I thought it was interesting in your story too, Sarah, about how they're saying that, you know, the uptake being so low, pediatricians 
probably won't stock a ton of it because it's you know they they don't they aren't going to leave it sit there and and then throw it away. Right, and they'll have to once the so the you know once the public health you know emergency expires and the current um, government stock of the bivalent vaccine that they've already purchased goes away, they're going to have to pay out of pocket um, as pediatricians you know pay up front to get the vaccine and have it in their office. And then if you don't use it, you know you're basically going to the concern is you're going to lose money on it. So you know what would be the incentive for them to have a vaccine if they can't convince people to get it or um so there was some push at by the AAP um at the ASIP meeting to think about whether you know something needs to be done to sort um to help you know ensure basically like would the government pay them for lost doses or change the reimbursement rate for these vaccines in some way as we shift to the commercial market to ensure they'd be willing to stock them yeah, it's almost like we're going to go back to kind of the early days when the early vaccine days were like they just scheduled clinics and they said, OK, come on this day and get an appointment. And then they would order the exact amount number of vaccine that they thought they were going to need and then just give it. And then at the end of the day, it was gone. And that was the end of it. I also found it interesting and I keep, you know, I've found this interesting back, you know, when the FDA first kind of discussed this issue was that. They now believe that you that the almost all of the American population has either been infected or vaccinated and has a base of antibodies. The fact that they believe that everyone has that infection is that, you know, and vaccination are combining to give everyone a base, I think is, a, you know, that was like a big change in kind of the way they were thinking about this. I don't know if that. <laughs> is going to help them get get more people vaccinated or not. But it just seems like a, a really kind of it, it's a really different way to kind of to think about this. And I'm guessing it's just, the, you know, the evolution of the pandemic and so forth. But still, it's a I just I still am kind of taken aback when I read that. Yeah, I think that is a, an interesting sort of admission, not just I mean, I, I'm not sure that it's particularly surprising to people at this point that most people have either gotten at least, you know, one vaccine or been infected or in many cases both. Um, but, you know, there have been other points throughout this crisis where the government was less willing to sort of acknowledge that, you know, you got some sort of future protection yeah. from benefit from, from infection they said from, don't from just infection get it. Yeah. and that that could could play into how many shots you did or didn't need and you know I, I to some extent i understand where they were coming from right it's always going to be much more dangerous right to 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 get any protection that way, right? To risk getting a disease to then have protection, right? Because you mm -hmm. you have to first survive the disease or sur survive the harm from the disease. So you sort of understand why they were, um, you know, hesitant at different points to think about it that way and you know to talk about it. But but I think some people have sort of picked on this change a little bit and the government not being willing to sort of more thoughtfully communicate how they're thinking about this now because they are acknowledging, okay, even if you've never gotten any COVID vaccine, we're fairly confident you've been exposed to it. So you just basically, you don't need to go through this whole primary series thing. You basically just, just kind of join everybody else, get this like updated bivalent shot. Now the one, um, again, population where they do want to make sure you're getting, doing more of a prime boost sort of thing to get 
adequate initial protection is in the youngest children. So, you know, when you're born um, and you start qualifying at six months, they do want you to go through that more, um, that prime boost process to get full protection, you know, which makes sense. <laughs> you haven't been yeah. alive to have been exposed to COVID. Yeah, exactly. So. But yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story, story Sarah. It's a, you know, I'm curious to see how this goes, you know, down the road. Finally, we're going to revisit Medicare price negotiations, another story that just seems to keep on giving. Kathy, industry is making its case for changes now, right? Yes, they are. Um, I did a story on pharma submitting comments to CMS on the price negotiation guidance um, that the agency has released. And the comments were very lengthy. They were 76 pages long, very detailed and very critical, not surprisingly, of most aspects of the um, plan for implementation. Um, what I focused on in this story is, you know, pharma making a pitch for CMS to basically focus on the minimum discount for all drugs um, for the first several years, as they said, of the program. Um, they argued that, you know, it's a very complex program. CMS doesn't have enough time or expertise to really put it together properly. And so they should sort of default to the minimum discount, which would be for most drugs, a 25% discount, which doesn't seem that um, onerous, particularly when you think of some of the rebates that um, drugs are paying now or the manufacturers are paying. And then pharma was arguing uh, longer term what CMS should do um, for negotiation is, you know, retain the uh, minimum discount for certain types of drugs, like drugs that are um, younger than 13 years old, you know, up to 12 years uh, from approval, drugs that meet an unmet medical need, and drugs that represent a important therapeutic advance, and they list some you know, criteria for defining those second two categories of drugs. Um, this, I think, is their, their um, sort of their best, well, their, their opening pitch <laughs> or offer to CMS. Um, we'll see how CMS responds. I mean, I think there is some, you know, there is some basis for the, the idea that this is a very complicated program and maybe CMS shouldn't embark on this process of, you know, using other types of data like R&D spending or the cost of therapeutic alternatives to sort of, you know, come up with a, a discount that goes maybe deeper than the, the minimums. Um, but, you know, whether it makes sense for several years and for all drugs remains to be seen. So we'll see what happens. Pharma also, you know, it, it implies that it's considering its legal options in the comments, which is no surprise. And, you know, so there's always that as as sort of a fallback if they can't, you know, really get CMS to make concessions like this up front. So it'll be interesting to see. There, there are not that many opportunities for comments. So this is sort of the big one. Um, and, you know, I, I'll be doing more coverage of pharma's comments and others. Um, so we'll we'll sort of see how that plays out. Okay, so the the minimum price reduction idea long term. So mm -hmm. they wanted to see it for younger drugs, those targeting unmet needs or representing a therapeutic or representing a therapeutic advance. Right. 
Isn't that yeah. all of them? <laughs> I know. They well, so the the way that they would define, um, you know, unmet medical need, they want um, CMS to adopt the FDA definition that it uses for its expedited approvals. You know, for the um, important therapeutic advance, there are some sort of um, uh, approaches in Medicare right now that CMS uses to determine a therapeutic advance. One is for their new technology add-on program. That's where they um, allow supplemental reimbursement for drugs that represent a therapeutic advance for a couple of years. Um, and the other was a system that they have for oncology drugs where they recognize certain medical compendia um, and they rely on those to decide whether to cover off-label uses for cancer drugs. So, I mean, you know, insofar as that might narrow the field, they're, you know, they do suggest criteria <laughs> like that. I like that, narrow the field. Yeah. <laughs> Kathy, when I was reading your uh, most recent story, I was reminded of your uh, interview uh, earlier in the year with uh, Novartis CEO, uh, yeah. Asant Narasimhan, uh, yeah. uh, who's now uh, chairman of the uh, Pharma board, and you know, one of the things yeah. he was telling you was what the um, industry really needs is predictability, and that's a sort of common business theme when uh, talking with uh, regulators. But uh, you know, the point he was making is that if we if we know sort kind of what the discount is going to be on a certain product, that allows us to calculate as we're developing it. Sort kind of you know, do we invest in these trials? Do we you know uh, right. start uh, exploring this category if it's going to uh, um, actually, uh, you know, make us uh, money in the long term. And this seems to be a uh, the most detailed expression of sort of, kind of what they're uh, hoping to get out of CMS uh, so far. And uh, I don't know if it's, a, um, uh, as you were saying, it's kind of too much to uh, um, uh, predict uh, um, what CMS might do. But, uh, you know, even if they went sort of, kind of higher than 25, it seems like it would uh, satisfy at least the uh, industry need for uh, some sense of what's going to happen, even if uh, um, it does sort of, kind of uh, give them a haircut in terms of the uh, the profitability. It's true, Matt. I was thinking about my interview um, with Nara Simhan when I, when I sort of put that story together because he did mention holding drugs, sort of novel therapies, to that 25% um, uh, discount, and um, and that in fact is what you know it looks like they're they're off they're proposing here um, because most of you know there was there been some. Uh, predictions of which drugs will be subject to negotiation in the first few years. And the lists that um, were put out there um, showed that the majority of drugs would be subject to that 25% discount. So it looks like, you know, that would cover, pretty much cover most of the drugs, except for the really old drugs that have been out there and, you know, um, enjoying um, free sort of pricing for a long time. But yeah, I think the predictability is important. And um, I do think that the way the law was written and really the way the guidance was written, there's still a lot of uncertainty. And CMS really has, it looks like it's leaving itself a lot of leeway to, you know, make decisions about discounting. So it does, you know, it does leave companies kind of in the dark. I understand the need for certainty, but it's not a negotiation if you know what the <laughs> price cut's going to be before yeah. it starts. That's yeah, well, that's what I had a similar <laughs> yeah. thought. Yeah, well, which I, is yeah. why would CMS agree to sort of locking themselves into to something like this? Yeah, well, I don't think anybody really thinks of this as negotiation, um, but 
it is also unclear, you know, how much CMS, I mean, there isn't, there is a process where manufacturers can make a counteroffer. You know, it's really unclear, uh, you know, how CMS is going to respond to that. Um, they don't have to accept it. And, you know, manufacturers really can't walk away. So CMS pretty much holds all the cards, but, you know, I guess it, that is possible. Yeah. That, that CMS might come up with uh, or might agree to a different price as part of the, nego the negotiation quote unquote process. Kathy, is there any chance that any of these ideas get implemented? You know, I, I think, there could be arguments for this idea of maybe at least the first year, you know, just just going for the minimum discount um, for just what it's worth. Use of the process. Yeah, I, yeah. I think there's some wisdom there for what it's worth. I was reading through the Duke Margolis comments and they made the same suggestion and they're, they're they could be a much more credible source um, to CMS than than uh, pharma or, you know, much sort of a disinterested um supporter of that idea. So I I think there's a chance. Interesting. Well, thanks, Kathy. Yeah. Sure. Interesting piece. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.